Hi, this is your host, Pete Bloom. Welcome to American Heroes Network. Our core mission is serving the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. You will hear true stories from those that have served, learn about veteran organizations and resources, and gain hope for your future knowing American Heroes Network, your community, and other veterans are here and at the ready to serve and help you and your family. We will talk about the hard topics like PTSD and TBI. You will also hear military history, inspirational stories, learn about networking with the community, and more. So come join us and be part of our family. Today's guest is an acclaimed filmmaker and documentarian who has built his brand around social responsible filmmaking that educates, inspires, and heals. He's a seven-time Southwestern Region Emmy Award recipient, and he has created and produced two films for veterans. He is a compassionate man with godly values who never stop helping others to begin the journey of healing. He is founder and owner of EC Productions. I would like to welcome Eric Christensen. Eric, thank you for coming on today, and how are you doing? I'm doing good, Pete. It's an honor to be on here, and I'm very excited to talk about one of my favorite things, which is veterans and healing and all the things that you mentioned. So thank you. Well, I'm really honored. I've seen the work that you've done, and I am just beyond impressed. So I wanted to give a little background for those listening so they can know a little bit more about you. So I wanted to share a little bit so they can understand how you got to the point of helping veterans and others who are dealing with trauma. So I wanted to say that I know that you've had a love of filmmaking from an early age, and you turned that into a career. And then during that time, you yourself became a trauma survivor because of the Painted Cave Fire that was in California. And I know you had to deal with the loss of home and possessions, and you really turned that experience into something that would help others. So today we're going to share your story and your passion for making a difference in the world through film. I guess we could begin, Eric, if you just want to talk about the early years of your life and how you liked film and how all that led to when the fire happened. I guess we can go way back, <laughs> all the way back to second grade, which is, as I get older, longer ways away each day. But uh, in second grade, that's when I first made my first Super 8. It was regular 8, actually, film that had a script. And I was fairly prolific in making eight millimeter films from second grade on. And I remember being that young and knowing I had some sort of message to get across. I didn't know what it was at the time. I did little safety films for my classroom. I did all the kind of films that you would do when you're younger. And I remember thinking that I go, wow, this gives me a voice and I have some sort of message. I wasn't clear on what that message was until way later. That's crazy. You probably must have gotten an A plus for making safety films for school, right? Yeah. You know, I always got the progress report or the report card that says, Eric has so much potential, but, you know, because with my regular schoolwork, I did well, but I always focused on visual communications and working on my films. And yeah, I got grades for those, but they also wanted the papers too. <laughs> <laughs> so you started in second grade. When did you go professional? You know, I think I got my first paid gig sometime when I was the production assistant, when I was around 12 or 13 years old. And uh, I was kind of working on the side, some educational films. And I remember that pretty clearly. And then from then on, I just kept working. And I ended up going to the California Institute of the Arts in the 80s. And that was a real eye opener for me. And I was exposed to so many other disciplines and crafts and just the whole art world. And I'm like, wow, the dance, the acting, the music. 
and really getting to know the artists behind that really expanded my vision as an artist of what I could do and how I could incorporate it with my own work. So that was an amazing experience at CalArts in the 80s. I think that not just film, but film is a big one, obviously, because it makes such an impression on people. But I do believe the arts, you know, like painting, theater, no matter what it is, really, they're all therapeutic in their own way, and they're all beneficial. I see so many different modalities of healing, and art is a big part of it, acting and singing. And for me, it's a big part of my process, being able to, my human process, is being able to work in each one of those different disciplines and with the main focus on film. Yeah, you know, recently I'd talked to someone, we did an interview, and he is a veteran, and he started a program here in Florida, and it's healing through glass blowing is the art medium that they're using, so it's very fascinating. Oh, that's great, and what a process that is. I mean, there's something about creation. You know, I think our creator created us to be creative, I mean, he's the ultimate in creation and being creative, and then it's just, again, mirroring my God of like being able to be creative with what's put in front of me and then somehow turning it into the greater good so I can help somebody else. Absolutely. And those of us that actually take that goal of helping others, and that's, I think, the best thing that we can do with those gifts that we're given. So you were living in Santa Barbara, then the fire happened. How did that fire change your life? And change my work. You know, it's so funny because we're talking about that being outward facing and helping other people. I guess my work before was very, very different. I don't want to say it didn't help people, but, you know, I edited a lot of rap videos. I was doing a lot of commercial work. I mean, by worldly standards, I was doing very well. But then the Painted Cave fire in Santa Barbara came through June 27th, 1990. And that changed my life. It took away all my worldly possessions. And I was left just with the relations that I had with the people around me. It took me about seven months of wandering around literally to get what that really meant, what the fire meant and backtracking a little bit. Even before that, I was drinking alcoholically and I was quite a partier. And um, after the fire, it really changed. I was drinking at the fire and I guess I got to a point of being a little bit hopeless. And the woman that's my wife now actually gave me a card to a gentleman that had this outpatient but not only did he have an outpatient group, but he also was connected with another larger recovery group that I immediately got involved with. And then I changed my life. That was seven months after the fire. January 12th, 1991 was when I took my last drink. And January 13th was my first sober day in 1991. So it's been 29 years of being clean and sober through the grace of God in this program that I am in. And it radically changed my work. That's when I did Faces in the Fire. I'd never done a documentary on my own. And I naively got involved and I, I was fascinated by the fact that as a fire survivor, I could speak with other fire survivors so well. The connection was so strong. But then when we would try to communicate this to the outside world, it wasn't the same. So I wanted to somehow portray that in a film. And that's when I started my film Faces in the Fire. And uh, I interviewed over a dozen fire survivors. And it was quite an odyssey at the time. It was before digital editing. And we put together this one-hour show that ended up debuting a year after the fire in Santa Barbara through the American Red Cross with their help. And that ended up going on to all sorts of cable outlets, and it won my first Emmy Award. But more important than that, Faces in the Fire was picked up by the National Institute of Mental Health, and I got a letter about maybe seven, ten years ago that they were still using it as a tool in helping counselors 
be ready to go in and debrief people that have been through disasters. So that more than all the accolades and everything, the fact that it was being used to help others by the National Institute of Mental Health was a huge thing. And I think that's when the spark went off. I'm like, this whole process is amazing because I grew immensely and healed immensely through working with others and making Faces in the Fire. So Faces in the Fire was really the start of, of you doing trauma recovery related films. I actually watched it and seeing you know what everybody went through and how they had to deal with it and listening to them talk about things. It was very, I mean, it really put you right there with them and how they felt and what they had to go through. And I could understand where they would need some sort of resource to heal and to get better. People sometimes think that war is trauma, but there are so many other things that are. And I think every one of them is important and needs to be dealt with. So that was definitely a great start. And so that really got you going in this whole thing. And so then the next thing you did was homecoming, a Vietnam vet's journey. So could you tell me all about that one? Oh my gosh, that was amazing. And, you know, unfortunately, looking back on it now, there was almost 10 years in between those two films. But in the meantime, after Faces in the Fire, I was employed as a director and everybody would say, hey, I want that warm fuzzy. I want that thing that you did with Faces in the Fire. So I worked with people like AT&T and Staples and corporate underwriter documentaries for public television, but it was never completely satisfying the way Faces in the Fire was satisfying, where I really connected with the individuals in the film. I grew up from my side of the camera, and I was able to witness other people grow. And so literally, I was in my men's group one morning, and I had been praying about finding another project like Faces in the Fire. And uh, my good friend, Bob Trimble, was in that group. And he was a uh, Purple Heart, Silver Star, Vietnam vet. And he was sharing how his mom had passed away and all this stuff was coming up. And he heard about this motorcycle run called Run for the Wall. And he heard it was more of a pilgrimage, that it was a healing run motorcycle run and he was thinking of going on this motorcycle run across the United States to the wall in Washington DC from California and it was laid in my lap I'm like oh that's my next film I'm going with Bob on this thing and it was pretty funny because I come home and at that time my middle boy Will had just been born and I had two little boys at home and I told my wife hey guess what I'm thinking of going on this motorcycle run with 300 Vietnam vets across the United States and she's like (laughs) oh great And uh, somehow I came up with the money. Actually, my father-in-law helped me uh, give a little seed money towards it. And then I found a little bit more money. And then in two weeks, I was on Run for the Wall. We were in a four-wheeler and following 300 vets on motorcycles across the United States, particularly Bob. But then I met some lifelong friends, J.R. Franklin, another Vietnam vet, Jungle Jim, who has now passed away, and Barry Swanson, who has now passed away. Ed Gon, a guy named Fingers. I met some amazing vets, and they were all the core of this film. And now they're still my friends uh, over 20 years later. It's about 20 years now. But that was the beginning of Homecoming of Vietnam Vets' journey. It was about the motorcycle run, about the catharsis that they have over this two weeks that they go across the United States on motorcycles and end up at the wall in Washington, D.C. And then that later went on to be picked up by public television again. And I got an extremely favorable review in the New York Times, which really kicked that film off. And man, the outpouring of vets after seeing that film and having it, it was pretty overwhelming. There's a story how this ties into my next film because it kind of passed on into Searching for Home 
coming back from war. I would definitely wanted to talk about that next, searching for home, coming back from war. But first, at the end of that motorcycle run, when everybody was there, did you see healing coming out of it? You know, I get real emotional. Yeah, I definitely did. I definitely saw so much healing and such a catharsis on the guys. They call them FNGs. And I think most people, most vets know what an FNG is. I don't think I can say the full. Some people call it a funny new guy. The FNGs, guys, first time on the run. And there was four of them in the film. And to see their change over the course of the run, and by the time we got to the wall, was absolutely amazing. But it wasn't just the wall that changed them. It was the outpouring of the people along the way, the parade they never got when they got home. Plus a very, very special place called Angel Fire. It's uh, David Westfall Memorial, Vietnam Vets Memorial in Angel Fire, New Mexico. His dad, Dr. Westfall, literally built it by hand for his son, David, who did not come home from Vietnam. And it is one of the most spiritual places I've ever been. It is just so powerful. And then when I saw, <laughs> when I saw my good friend, Bob Trimble, get off his motorcycle there, and he literally was almost taken to his knees because that power of that healing and the power of angel fire really was upon him. And he was able to drop a lot of that stuff he was carrying from Vietnam right there. And I just absolutely love that place. Angel Fire, New Mexico. It's the David Westfall Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It's whew. anyways, look it well, up. <laughs> well I'll tell you, I'm adding that one to my check it out list. I'm going there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's go ahead and talk about searching for home coming back from war. Tell us all about that movie and how you saw healing come out of that as well. Searching for home, coming back from war, again, it was almost 10 years after homecoming. At my age now, I can't wait another 10 years in between films. I won't get too many more done. Homecoming was done before there was a lot of vets returning with various trauma-related diagnoses, including PTSD. And so when these new conflicts started getting kicked into gear in Afghanistan and Iraq, there seemed to be a need again for a similar film. So I started working with a gentleman called Dr. Jeremy Crosby out of Wichita, Kansas. And he was working at the VA there and he's just an amazing therapist and clinician. And he really encouraged me to follow this path into searching for home. And one of the things in Homecoming that was so amazing is no matter who the men were or where the background was, they seemed to heal in a very similar way. I think God has a healing plan, much like he has a plan for a scab and a scratch. It'll scab over, it'll heal. I think healing from trauma is very similar. So when I noticed and saw that really in homecoming, and I had seen it in Face in the Fire, that we all heal in such a similar way that I really wanted to broaden the film a little bit. So we have some World War II veterans all the way to the guys that are coming home now. We have World War II, Korea, Vietnam. All those eras are represented in the film. So we had put that film together, and I was very good at getting corporate underwriting and working in that world, but that was 2008, and that's when the bottom dropped out of everything, and there was no underwriting. And so it was fairly discouraging, but a good friend of mine, Anthony Edwards, I've known him since childhood. He played Goose in Top Gun. So he came on as the executive producer, and he helped us get some national attention, and we started a Kickstarter campaign 
and a couple online funding campaigns. And they went fairly well, but they were falling short. And it was very frustrating to try to get this off the ground. But this is an interesting thing that happened. There's a gentleman, I'll call him John (laughs) for right now, but he was a Vietnam vet in Texas that saw Homecoming way back when. And I remember getting a letter from him saying, oh, thank you for doing Homecoming. It really helped me out and get a lot of healing. My life has changed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember that morning after the Kickstarter campaign ended and we didn't make our goal, we got a letter again from John and his wife, Diane, in Texas, because he was married. And he said, what if we were to help you get out of fundraising mode and into production so we can pay forward with this next film, what Homecoming did for me? So we had these angels come out. They said, you know, I see it as our ministry. And so I started making Searching for Home, coming back for more, thanks to John and Diane. And then it just picked up a lot of momentum from there. It took several years of interviews and working on that to finish it. And we ended up having a premiere through KCET Los Angeles here in Los Angeles and had a theatrical run in Los Angeles and New York. We qualified for the Oscars. We were on the 100 list, but we didn't get on the short list for the Oscars, unfortunately. We ended up taking the film and going to public TV with it for a wider release. And after three different major distributors said, oh, the film's too long, it has too many people in it, et cetera, et cetera, we were finally picked up by NIDA, which is the National Education Television Association. And they ran with the ball. And despite the fact that they said it was too long, it was 90 minutes, had too many people, et cetera, et cetera, we kicked that thing off. And in three years, we had 2,300 airings of that film. And then it again went on to an amazing New York Times review. And there's so many stories within the inner workings of the friendships and the healing that went on with the vets. It's hard to like single one out. If you want me to, I can pick one out. (laughs) If you want to throw an example out there, that's fine. I sure wouldn't mind. And I think it might help entice people to want to go see that. You know, one of my favorite things to talk about is Bill Johnson. His name's Fat Cowboy. That's his nickname. That's how I know him. He was a Korean war veteran, Marine, Purple Heart from Kansas. And I remember the first time we met him, we were interviewing him. We're interviewing out in the park and it's really cold. And he's like, what the hell are we doing out here? You know, (laughs) he's an old salt, amazing man. And slowly but surely we kept working with him, coming back to interview him, got to know his family. And by the end of this process, we had become friends. I remember one of the best parts of getting to know Fat Cowboy was he was in rest home because he had a stroke and he had changed a lot. And I remember his daughter, Belinda, brought him homemade frog legs. And I sat there and had frog legs with the fat cowboy and talked about everything. And what an honor. But the interesting thing is, fat cowboy was very, very scared to pass on. Because the things he had done and the things he had seen and the things he had done in um, Korea. And he was very, very scared of like what would come next. Because he was a godly man, but he was frightened. And by working through some of this in the film knowing he was part of something bigger than himself. When he passed, I got a note from his daughter saying, thank you, you really helped my dad in this whole process. And I'm just the messenger, God's working through me, and that was amazing. But then here we go on Veterans Day, we release the film to public television, and all these stations are picking up on Veterans Day. And Fat Cowboy has passed away. 
So we're like, why isn't it being picked up in Kansas on Veterans Day? We're like, oh, wow, that's kind of frustrating. So Memorial Day rolls around, and all of a sudden all the stations in the state of Kansas, pretty much all the stations pick up searching for homecoming back from war. And I didn't put it together until I talked to his daughter, Belinda, and we're like, oh, my gosh, it's for Fat Cowboy. He had passed away, and for Memorial Day, they're showing his film. So I got this beautiful letter from Belinda and the whole family. And every time I go to Kansas now, I get to go back and visit the whole Johnson family, which is huge. And what an experience and what an honor to be able to be a messenger and be there for such a great man. And to be able to honor the whole family on Memorial Day. We have a showing of your dad's movie. So that was really neat. That is amazing. And so that's just one story. And there are so many, as you said, there's lots of people. And it just keeps going. There are just so many people that need help and the outpouring of people from one movie that you put together to help with trauma just leads to, I think, other people seeing it and maybe getting some understanding or maybe getting an idea of how to deal with a problem. So I just think these things are absolutely amazing. So one of the things about all this is you came up with a mission and you got a calling. So how all this really started and, and how your path has come to be as the way it is now. Can you kind of talk about personal and your company mission and finding God and calling to help others? You know, it's a series of God coming to me and saying, you know what, it's not about you anymore. <laughs> and after the fire and working through faces in the fire and seeing the healing that can happen, it became about what I can do for others through my craft. And it became my calling. And then having kids was another place where God's like, it's not about you. Keep pushing. And it's just interesting in doing these films that God puts me in a place that it seems like, how are we going to get past this? How is Searching for Home, Coming Back from War, going to get distribution? And he had a plan the whole time. And so it's about me developing trust. And it's about my perseverance and persistence in continuing to do these types of films. The mission that I have is to not give up and not sell out. We've had opportunities where they've come to us when we're making Searching for Home and go, that would make a great reality show. You know, it sounds like it would be a great idea, but I had to tell them no, because the problem is if we take these veterans out of context and put them in a reality show, it's going to be detrimental to the people in my film. I'm so guarded. These people tell me their sacred stories. And so it is a huge responsibility for me to carry these stories and tell them in the way that they intended for them to be reflected back to the people. And so that's part of my mission and that's part of my calling is just to reflect these stories and keep moving and eventually getting to the point with my craft where you're talking about the interviewing and everything and touching people's souls. I want to get to the place in my craft where people can watch the film and they get the conscious part of it, but the subconscious moves so mightily through it. And it's through craft. And each time I do another film, I get closer to that goal. So I hope that kind of answers that. Yeah, it does. I want people to understand where you're coming from. And you're basically out there and you're making socially conscious films. You're portraying the human journey. You're promoting tolerance and things like that. And all the while, it just seems like you're allowing God to kind of direct what you do and how you grow. And it just seems like it's going in a very positive direction and you're doing more to help more people and even expanding the scope of who you're helping. 
and making a bigger impact. So I think it's an awesome mission. One last thing with that. I don't necessarily like being called a filmmaker. I like being called a messenger, a healer, something else, because it's frustrating in the veteran space. There's so many filmmakers now that come in and they see this dramatic story they can tell. So they go and try to tell this story. But unless you're intrinsically connected with that experience, which God has allowed me to be from allowed kind of into that family from when I did Homecoming On, unless you're connected that way, it's very exploitative. I think it's exploitation in a way. I take this very seriously what I do, and I honor their stories above all because they've allowed me into their life in such an intimate way that I need to be able to rise to that responsibly and tell the real story and not come into a situation as some filmmakers do and want to tell the story they have in their head. I have to always remind myself when I come into a situation and an interview, it needs to go wherever it's going to go. And God's guiding this and it's their story, not mine. I try not to guide the stories. I try just to be a conduit. And that's my hope. That makes perfect sense. I mean, you're believing in the higher power and you're letting go and letting God guide you. And I think the biggest thing there that I want people to understand from what you said is in listening to these stories and telling these stories, you are respecting the people who tell the stories and not exploiting them at all. I mean, that's the way to do it properly to help somebody heal is to just make sure you're absolutely respecting them at all times. And you've definitely shown that definitely done a super job at taking care of these people that you've talked to and interviewed. I tell my crew when we come into the situations that our transparency and our openness and our ability to listen is above the film. Our connection with the people is above the film. If we're not coming in there to make a film, we're coming in there to connect and be transparent and a conduit for them. And when we follow that, then the film falls into place. I just want to mention somebody too that's been a big help with me on searching for home, coming back from war, and with my current film, Unmasking Hope, is Pam Pyre. And she's in Searching for Home, Coming Back from War. She's one of the moms. And she started an organization called the Wounded Heroes of Maine. And now she is like literally my left-hand person in dealing with these survivors that we work with. We're very cognizant of how we leave them and how we work with them that we don't open up old wounds, that we have some sort of closure and we have continuity of connection with these people. So it becomes a positive experience instead of us just coming in and ripping things apart with interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Pam now has been a big part of that. She pretty much does what we would call film participant care. And we take it super seriously, these individuals, especially the vets and all these people, they've went through so much. And the vets have given so much for us. Yeah, absolutely. You've had several films and you've got a lot of people who have seen them and you've helped a lot of people. How do you stay connected with your community? Oh my gosh, it just happens. It's part of the process for me. I can go all the way back to homecoming of Vietnam vets journey is J.R. Franklin, one of the Vietnam vets. You know, I talked to him at least once a month and Ed Gone and all those guys. How I stay connected is I just stay connected with the people in my films. With my current film, Unmasking Hope, there's a gentleman, Jack Delaney, who was a first responder on 9-11. And I think I just texted him yesterday. Just, you know, Jack, what's going on? And he calls me surfer boy from California because he's in Long Island. <laughs> this is a gift, though, I'm given. 
are these relationships. There's Mike Pyre. There's Brandon Deaton from Searching for Home, Coming Back from War. My son plays football back on the East Coast, and uh, he has his spring game. And I'm like, Brandon, you got to come down for the spring game. He'll be there for the spring game with his new wife. And they just become part of my family. They literally do. It's a huge gift. By being that way, then I'm just connected. And then I go back to Pam. People are like, well, how do you find your participants? It's a God thing, really. And then Pam is just amazing. And she found all our 9-11 participants. And it's funny because the right people find us. The people that need to be there and the people that want to be there end up being in the film. It constantly amazes me. And I just got to let go because God has a plan with all this. And so does Pam. Let's talk about the value of the films now. I mean, because obviously we talked about healing and all this kind of stuff, but how does your film help heal veterans? You broke it down into a couple of levels. Can you kind of talk about that? There's two basic levels that my film operate on. With Searching for Home in particular, coming back from war, there's one level of the people that aren't really touched by veterans, the people that have no military experience are watching this on their TV set. And it brings a certain amount of awareness to these individuals that are viewing this of the condition of the veterans, of what they go through, how they come through it. Hope is a big, big part of all my films. And it does a couple things with those viewers that are unconnected with that. It creates an awareness for them. And through that awareness, I pray that it becomes empathy. And then through that empathy, they kind of understand a little bit more about the Vietnam vets. They understand more about the guys that are coming home now. So when they hear that story on the news or see that guy on the street, they're not going to be like, oh, he's just a crazy vet. They've seen the film and they've seen what these gentlemen and women have went through. And it hopefully creates an awareness and understanding and in their hearts and empathy so they can put themselves in their shoes. So that's a big part for the non-connected type of people. And then also the uh, secondary with those people, it's aspirational. Man, if that guy can get his leg blown off and then go be one of the top pedal bikers in marathons, this little thing that happened to me is nothing. I can get through it too. And so that's something that happens to the people that aren't connected. To the people connected in the military, in particular in Searching for Home, Coming Back from War, in the military community and the veterans, It works on a different level. And this level is, particularly with the veterans themselves, they're watching this and one of the guys will connect somehow with them. They won't particularly know why, but he'll say something and go, oh my gosh, me too. Oh, wow. He's feeling the same things I'm feeling after coming home, after being deployed. Oh, thank God I am not alone. So it's identification. So on that level, That's amazing because then they can identify and then they connect and then they go, what is this guy doing? And they see the hope part. And they're like, wow, if he can do that, then I can do that. If he can like start to heal, there is hope for me. So it's awareness for the people that are not necessarily connected. Then it's identification for the people that are connected. And then in between all that is aspiration of hope and understanding no matter what you went through, that healing is totally possible. Wow, that is just so good and so important, the way that you laid it out, and it makes perfect sense. And especially, I think most importantly for those veterans, because a lot of them have been through so much. And one of the big things that I always feel is that there are two types of wounds. And, you know, there's obviously those physical ones that people can see, and then there's the internal ones that they can't. 
And I think that a lot of times the internal one is the harder one to deal with because you can't see it. And so these people hearing and watching and seeing that other people are dealing with that same kind of stuff, those are the ones that I think really need it because they've not been recognized. So there's a serious impact there. So the thing that you're doing now is you have a a latest project that you're working on, Unmasking Hope. If you wouldn't mind spending a few minutes talking about that and why you think it is so important in today's world. You know, Unmasking Hope, I'm glad this is a really good progression because Unmasking Hope really uses both of those pieces, those components that we just talked about, the awareness and the identification. But it expands it even further. When Searching for Home Coming Back from War ended up being so successful on public TV with 2,300 plus showings, we're like, okay, what are we going to do next? And huddling back with my clinical supervisors and with Pam and my core group, we were talking about this and I wanted to expand further out into other traumas to expand my audience so the reach is greater, not just the military. So people will understand that trauma is, there's so many different types of trauma, you know, and so that's where Unmasking Hope came from. And it came from also the idea that a lot of these survivors and all of us wear these masks in order to keep functioning in society. These masks can also become a detriment to a certain point and hide workaholism, alcoholism, drug addiction. But these masks that we wear to hide our pain, you know, the unmasking of that and finding hope is centered to this film. So we started by gathering a group of kind of very uh, diverse trauma survivors. We have a first responder. We have a military sexual trauma survivor. We have a sexual trauma survivor. And then somebody said, what about 9-11? And I'm like, well, that's a pretty big issue there. I don't know. But then they're like, hey, you've already tackled Vietnam. You've tackled all these other veterans issues. 9-11, we ended up with one 9-11 survivor and one 9-11 first responder. We also now have a child Holocaust survivor and a mass shooting survivor, mother-daughter. And so how these all fit together, it goes back to when I was talking about homecoming, is that even though they're so diverse and they come from such different backgrounds, the aggregate of the stories is essentially the same because we all heal the same. And we all look for that same hope. And we're taking that mask off. We're talking about going behind that mask. It's quite amazing. With Becky, it's been 18 years after 9-11. And it's just been the last three years that she's been able to really kind of start to take that mask off and start to breathe. And it's that hope that's coming through. And what we're trying to do with Unmasking Hope is to inspire everybody to really look at what they've been through, take their own masks off, start to follow their own healing modalities. And also, it's a call for empathy and tolerance for all these other people that have went through these different traumas. And we've been in production for about a year now, and we're working through putting some grants and things together for completion, and we're still in fundraising to finish up the post-production, but we already have distribution and we have the whole team put together. It's just a matter until some of these grants hit and we finish up with the donations and we'll finish this film. Awesome. I have watched the trailer for it. It is absolutely amazing. I can't wait till it is out there. So right now we don't have any fixed date because we're still working through, like you said, the post-production stuff, right? Yes. We have two more interviews to shoot and then we're in post. And, you know, if anybody's interested, they can go to unmaskinghopethemovie.com. It is also a International Documentary Association fiscal-sponsored film. 
So we're under a 501c3 umbrella. So any donations are tax deductible as allowed by law. So if you're interested in helping out with that, because I can guarantee you millions of people will see this film also. Yeah, and the most important aspect is everybody walking down the street, you never know who you're walking past, who is dealing with something, who has some kind of mask on, and everyone being able to see this, I think are just hundreds of thousands of people that could be healed from this. So I'm really looking forward to see it happen. Thank you. It's a lot of trust. We just keep moving forward and God keeps putting these things in front of us. So I guess one last thing I can think of to ask Eric is if you had to give an action items list to maybe transitioning military or veterans that are out of the military so that they can be either successful or so that they can begin healing, what kind of things would you tell them to do? Oh my gosh. The one thing is, is ask for help. The biggest problem in any sort of trauma-related situations, particularly PTSD, is that isolation. When people go into isolation, when people go into that lonely place, it only compounds on itself. So one of the biggest things is ask for help. Stay close to your buddies. Talk to somebody. Ask for help again. And I got to say, one of the highest success rates I see in my vets are when they go to vet centers, which are associated with the VA. The VA does a good job considering everything because they're understaffed and overloaded. But the vet centers are amazing. And you can go in and talk vet to vet and connect through the vet centers. But the biggest thing is do not isolate and talk to somebody and ask for help. It's the same with family members. If you notice any sort of odd reactions, go on and do a little bit of research about PTSD and trauma. But ask for help. Get professional help. Get to a vet center. And keep in contact with your brothers that you came home with. All right. Well, that's excellent advice. Well, Eric, I wanted to say that I thank you so much for taking the time out of what you're doing. You're already helping so many others, but now you're coming on this interview and through the American Heroes Network, sharing your story and how people can heal and things that they can watch to see that they're not alone. So I appreciate all of it. I appreciate your time. I appreciate what you're doing for everyone. And I really just wanted to say thank you and God bless you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing your next project come to fruition. Thank you, Pete. I really appreciate it. And it's just been a distinct honor to be on this show. And I've looked at the other individuals that have been on this show and to follow up some of those guys, it's amazing. And I just want to say to all the service members, veterans, active or not, that are out there listening, man, there's people outside. You may not see them all the time, but I know there's people out there pulling for you, supporting you. I am one of them because without you folks doing your job, we don't have a lot left here. So man, thank you so much. And thank you, Pete. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to keep coming back each week for more great episodes. If you want to talk about something you learned today, if you have questions, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, go to AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and click on contact us. Thank you for listening.